1995, the Northern Territory shocked the world, and particularly John Howard, when it became the first jurisdiction on the planet to allow terminally ill patients access to a medically assisted death. Of course, that legislation was very quickly euthanized. But 30 years on, every state in Australia now has their own voluntary assisted dying legislation and the two territories are in the process of pursuing similar reforms. Now, clearly attitudes to death and dying have changed over time in Australia and across the West. But two centuries ago, the way people understood death and suffering and the role of medicine was radically different. Dr Caitlin Maher, M-A-H-A-R, is an historian at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne and author of The Good Death Through Time. Welcome, Caitlin, and congratulations. Can we start by uh, asking about the word euthanasia? Where does it come from? Hi, Philip. Uh, Lovely to be here. Well, the word euthanasia is uh, a Greek word and was coined in antiquity and is a compound of two words, eu and thanatos, meaning good death, literally meaning good death. But what's interesting from an historical point of view is that there's no evidence that anything like uh, a medically assisted death was conceivable, let alone practised in ancient Greece. So um, for the Greeks, when they imagined a good death, they certainly weren't imagining a a doctor with a lethal dose of drugs at the deathbed. Uh, For the Greeks, a good death might be a natural death from old age or one in the lap of luxury. And I guess the bottom line was that it wasn't something that could be orchestrated by humans. It was a matter of fate or a a gift the gods bestowed on on, uh, the virtuous or the just lucky. Caitlin, as Christianity spreads through Europe, how does the meaning of euthanasia change? So as... um, Christianity became the dominant sort of lens through which people started to view dying in Western Europe. The term, as you suggest, took on quite a new meaning. So a good death or the euthanasia came to refer to a pious death blessed by God. And this good death could well involve pain and suffering because not only were these experiences seen as largely unavoidable in a pre-anesthetic age, but pain and suffering were seen as ultimately redemptive. And for centuries, you can see this in the fact that for centuries, far and away, the most reproduced image of good dying was uh, Christ's crucifixion, which obviously was fairly painful. That's a very powerful observation (laughs) that hadn't occurred to me in this context. Of course, a good death could also be an heroic death on a battlefield, couldn't it? Even though it could... uh, involve great pain. Yes. Um, ancient Greek scholars think that that was definitely one of the ways that youth, the term euthanasia or derivations of it was used in, in um, the ancient Greek world. So uh, it wasn't necessarily used to describe deaths that were, uh, that were painless even then. And the idea that a good death should be painless only really came about in uh, the latter part of the 19th century. You make the point that the word appears in popular art of dying, 
guides which outline prayers and instructions for those attending the deathbeds of the ill to help them reach salvation. Yes. So um, the ultimate aim of, of a good death for centuries in the West was um, one where you were saved. So people invested hope in the idea of salvation rather than the idea of cure or the elimination of pain. You're too young to remember Malcolm Muggeridge, but uh, he was an old mate of mine and Barry Jones, and I remember having an argument with him because Malcolm argued that people should be denied painkillers on the deathbed because they needed to go through this, uh, this portal of pain to a better place. I always found that absolutely sadistic. Well... Yeah, and the, and the, uh, the fact that um, he would have been unusual even even then in advocating that because um, that idea has become really anachronistic across the board for, for most people who are devout as well. Um, and that shift took place in the 19th century when uh, people, including people who are devout, came to see pain relief as potentially something that could aid a good death rather than undermine it. You make the point that at least until the mid-1800s, a swift death would be considered troubling because it didn't allow time for spiritual preparation or repentance. Now, let's look at the, the phenomenon of tuberculosis or consumption, far and away the biggest killer of the 19th century. How did Victorians feel out about those drawn-out deaths. I seem to remember some very sentimentalised paintings. Yes, well, so for the Victorians, tuberculosis or dying from consumption or tuberculosis could actually be seen as a good death in the sense that it, uh, it gave people time to prepare spiritually as well as materially for dying. And so, and because pain wasn't seen in the way it is now as a sort of degrading, dehumanising experience, then uh, those sort of deathbeds could actually be not just um, powerful in terms of the redemptive possibilities for the person who was dying, but very much sort of educative experiences for other, other people because pain was seen as something that inspired and helped inculcate compassion in in witnesses, family and witnesses. So, well, you make the point that pain was seen as part of the moral universe. Yes, absolutely. So um, it was very much seen as something terrible that Christians had a duty to, to attempt to relieve. But we're talking of an era where the idea of pain being eradicated in the pre-anesthetic era was inconceivable. But not only that, as you, as you say, it was part of a moral universe. So people actually thought that, um, understood it as something that inspired the virtues of uh, charity and, and compassion and helped humanise people. This, this point of view was powerfully articulated by a wondrously named Dr Samuel Beckett. And that leads us to another Samuel, Mr Samuel D. Williams, widely regarded as the first English-speaking person to advocate for, yes, medically assisted dying. Introduce us to Samuel D. Williams. Well, yes. So Samuel Williams, we don't actually know that much about him. His essay that was titled Euthanasia became much more famous 
than than he ever did. But he was a member of a speculative philosophy club in Birmingham in um, the 19th century. And he and some other people uh, in the club got together and um, wrote some speculative essays. And his was called Euthanasia. And he advocated that doctors, this this is in 1870, that doctors should be able to give their patients a lethal dose of drugs um, if they were dying. Uh, if if the patient it. wanted it. That's, that's it, important, yes, yeah. if the patient wanted it. Um, and so he sort of turned the Victorian idea of um, the good death on, on its head. And and that essay of his, in a sense, went viral. It was widely published yes. and republished. <laughs> yes, it did. Even... even um, in the Antipodes, I found a copy in the um, Alfred Deakin Library that had been kept uh, from the from the nineteenth century. So, um, yeah. So he, while he travelled into obscurity, people we don't really know whether he, he was some sort of professional. He may have been a businessman. He may have been a teacher. Certainly, his idea and this essay resonated with the zeitgeist at the time. I'm talking to Dr Caitlin Marr, historian at Swinburne Uni and author of The Good Death Through Time. Now, listeners will be astonished to know that for centuries, doctors were not welcome at the deathbed. It was a a sacred space attended primarily by family and clergy. Caitlin, when were doctors given the nod? In the 19th century, they um, began to replace family and clergy at the deathbed. Uh, and a part of the reason they they hadn't been welcome uh, was because, well, one, because as we've just been talking about, death was seen as very much a spiritual ordeal rather than a physical ordeal. So um, there was really no place for the doctor at the deathbed. And the other reason they weren't really welcome is because they weren't particularly associated with the mitigation of pain. In fact, they were very much associated with the infliction of pain until um, well into the 19th century. Um, Not just surgery, but many sort of now infamous remedies, such as uh, cautery and um, blistering and cupping, were based on this idea that um, pain actually had uh, healing properties. Uh, I'm remiss, I'm not, I'm remiss in not mentioning, in glowing terms, Francis Bacon, an early advocate (laughs) for doctors uh, intervening to relieve pain, way back in 1605. Yes. He suggested that uh, physicians should not only work to restore health, but also to, quote, mitigate the pains and torments of diseases. Yes, yes, he was an early advocate. Um, but uh, it took quite a long time for, for doctors to take on that idea and start to think that uh, they might have a duty not just to preserve life but to, um, to, to stay and, and care for the dying and, and mitigate their pain. You also factor in the development of ether and chloroform. They became better understood. And the fact that in 1850s, the hypodermic syringe was developed, opening up a whole new world of possibilities. 
Yes, it did open up a whole new world of possibilities. Um, so the hypodermic, yes, syringe was developed in 1850 and so that meant that drugs like morphine could be administered much more effectively and with fewer side effects. Um, also, it was only around that time really that opiates began to be seen as analgesics and to be used specifically for pain relief because opiates were widely used throughout the 19th century, but not particularly as an analgesic. So they were used, you could buy them at the grocer or the market, um, but they were used for everything from, you know, putting putting the baby to sleep to um, flatulence. <laughs> and, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry, putting the baby to sleep. <laughs> Hopefully it woke up again. <laughs> yes, tell me, well, tell, tell me, Tell me about physician William Monk, M-U-N-K. Well, William Monk is credited as developing the first um, medical trustees or the most famous one on the medical trustees. Um, in, the, in the late 19th century, he produced a, a book that gathered together anecdotes and, uh, that, that people, doctors who had cared for the dying had written and sort of put them together as a guide for others. Called euthanasia or medical yes. treatment in aid of an easy death, and it was endorsed by the influential Lancet. Yes, and I mean, it's very important. Um, we were talking earlier about the idea that uh, the term euthanasia, which literally means good death, um, the meaning of that term has changed over time. And so this this was another change that it used to be used exclusively to describe a pious death blessed by God, but during the 19th century it came to be used by doctors to describe their new duty or practice at the deathbed to relieve the pain of the dying patient. So but enter not, the, but not ra to the cause radical death. notion that pain might be pointless and could be removed without disrupting the theological or natural order. Yes. Monk himself was a devout Catholic um, and uh, very much believed that a good death essentially was about faith and uh, salvation, but that actually using opiates might actually aid aid in a good death, so aid people to focus on spiritual preparation. You make a, a fascinating point that whilst early Victorians had anxieties about the agonies of hell, Late Victorians were increasingly focused on earthly pain. Yes, and this was one of the um, really interesting paradoxes I found d during the research that as all the, this sort of revolution in pain relief came about, and this is something that um, historians have noted in lots of different fields, and I talk about it in terms of um, the pain of dying, but that as people became more accustomed to having their pain relieved or managed and suppressed, they appeared to become more sensitive to and intolerant of it. And not just their own pain, but even the sight of pain and the idea of pain. So I think I think it's important that to recognise that it wasn't just that pain came to be seen as more unusual or aberrant, although it, it did, um, it also began to be seen as degrading and dehumanising um, and an undignified dehumanising experience for everyone concerned. 
Caitlin, here's the hypodermic syringe. Here are these new drugs that can reduce pain. Does the slippery slope argument appear? In other words, you know, there's only there's a very narrow line, often a blurred line, between reducing pain and shortening life. Yes, well, initially uh, objections to pain relief, both from, from doctors and from patients um, when in the 19th century, were about the way that it might undermine religious priorities. But towards the, um, the end of the century, people became, as more doctors began to use pain-relieving drugs, uh, and treat the dying with them, the ethical concern changed and it became a, a, about, as you say, like how far should we go with this new medical treatment to relieve relieve the dying? And so certainly Victorian doctors were really cautious and disciplined in, in their approach to pain relief and, um, and made a point of talking about the sort of signs that suggested you shouldn't administer morphine or opium or chloroform. They were very concerned about the Hippocratic uh, injunction, didn't, weren't they? Yes, and um, the Hippocratic injunction both basically suggested that above all else, uh, doctors had to preserve life. It was only actually in the 19th century that they began to think they had a duty to mitigate pain at all. So it was, um, uh, but, yeah, so it was a But quite clearly, shift. doctors at this time didn't want to or feared losing the trust of the public if they yes, were too avant-garde. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, they'd only just, uh, I mean, because another, another aspect was that d- this new idea that the doctor might not be just someone who came in and gave you some really terribly painful remedy that but might actually stay with you and um, help you get through the uh, the spiritual and uh, physical ordeal of dying really uh, helped to improve the status of doctors in the 19th century. Um, and so you can see how uh, many doctors who had just got used to having a bit more respect because as as carers for the dying would have balked at the idea that now maybe they'd overdose their patients. You, and this you, is a time when everyone is around the deathbed too. Yeah. You, know. you tell us that the Voluntary Euthanasia Legislation Society was found in the, founded in England in the mid-30s and they had some legislative success. Yes, they got their bill... Um, to a second reading in the House of Lords, which they were pretty excited about. Um, and it, it, it failed to pass, but um, they weren't completely disappointed with the, um, the the reaction. They felt that, you know, the principle of their bill wasn't completely rejected by opponents. But, but certainly uh, prominent doctors were on both sides of the debate, which was one of the really interesting things about about that debate, that really the proponents of the bill were eminent doctors and so were the opponents of the bill. Um, it's interesting that the bill included, or the proposed bill, included a number of safeguards. The individual would need to formally request euthanasia in writing with two official witnesses <laughs> and obtain two independent medical certificates verifying eligibility. The sort of arguments, of course, that echoed in our time in history. 
Yes, in some ways the bill is actually very similar to ones that came you know, much, much later in history, in, in um, certainly in Australia. So, yes, that is interesting. The debate probably was slightly different. Opponents certainly had slippery slope arguments, which at the time were called thin end of the wedge arguments. So yeah. where they said, well, um, we can see that you're just aiming to have this available for people who are terminally ill, but we can see that it might expand. And this was particularly the case because there are actually many proponents of euthanasia at the time who actually thought that it should be available for those who were intellectually disabled. So the thin end of the wedge argument was um, in the air. It's interesting that the Second World War slammed on the brakes pretty much, I guess, in a response to Nazism. Yes. So that was really interesting in the sense that medical doctors uh, were were such leading figures in in the British euthanasia movement in the 30s, which was um, the the pioneering organisation in the world. But after the Second World War and the revelation and revelations came out about um, the Nazi euthanasia program and the role that doctors and nurses had played in that, medical practitioners and medical organisations all over the world completely um, rejected any idea of euthanasia and um, the movement, uh, uh, that was one of the reasons the movement really floundered after the Second World War. Fast forward to the 1950s, I want you to tell us about the case of Dr John Bodkin Adams. I only wish I could claim him as a relative. (laughs) Yes, well, he is a very interesting character. So he was a, a... English GP who lived in a very fashionable part of the coast in England and he made his money and career looking after elderly patients. At some time in the 1950s, people began to think that he might be knocking off his um, patients uh, for for a bit of money, his his, uh, fashionable, wealthy patients. And um, he ended up being charged by by the police. And And acquitted, and acquitted. And acquitted. Um, And so he's still, still, um, if you Google him, there's still, you know, armchair historians and historian historians who um, debate whether or not he really got away with murder. And... So, but I, I was interested in the case because the trial and, and the case reveals something about the way that um, medical practice at the deathbed was changing in the 50s or had changed actually by the 50s. The way that doctors cared for the dying in the early 20th century is, is very much shrouded in mystery because um, we're talking about a time where people died at home uh, and their GP um, attended them and really care of the dying, the way you cared for the dying was passed on by sort of anecdote and folklore. There were no uh, edicts or guidebooks as there are now. My um, guest is Dr Caitlin Ma, historian at Swinners and author of The Good Death Through Time. Now, let's jump to the 1970s and to a case I vividly remember, that of Karen Ann Quinlan. Yes. So Karen Ann Quinlan was an American girl who um, 
Well, she collapsed at night from a respiratory arrest and yes. fell into a deep comatose state. Yes, and this was at a time when the media particularly were starting to take an interest in uh, the world of medicine, a much more critical interest than they had previously. You know, doctors had very much been sort of demigods for much of the 20th century. So she became a worldwide phenomenon, this young girl who was attached to a respirator. Eventually her devout Catholic parents asked for the respirator to be removed. And but the, the and hospital the, refused. They did because they were basically scared that they might face civil or even criminal prosecution because this was a time when... Uh, there was lots of litigation against doctors in America and um, things like a new concept of brain death had made the whole area of respirator, what you do when someone's on a respirator in a vegetative state, unclear in a way that it hadn't been before because respirators had been around since um, the 1950s and doctors had been, if you like, pulling the plug since then, you know, making the decision on their own. But um, suddenly in this new environment where there were, was the development of the medical concept of brain death, it became a bit unclear as, as to what to do. Pulling the plug, of course, is not uh, simply a metaphor. It is literally the case. Now, <laughs> yes. in this era, the push for voluntary euthanasia becomes more of a grassroots initiative in Australia, for example. Yes, so the 1970s is when um, we see the first organisations being established in Australia and they were very much inspired by the English movement. Some of the founders were, were members of the English organisation uh, and they were very much inspired by the English organisation's change of tack. So the English organisation had been very much interested in cultivating eminent doctors and eminent people in lots of fields to their cause pre, prior to the Second World War. But after the Second World War, they began to think that they needed to, well, as they said, the working class didn't know anything about the cause so they, and they felt that they needed to resurrect the cause in a more grass, grassroots way. I mean, they were also, they also worried that... that um, development of um, palliative care and the use of drugs in hospitals to ease the pain of the dying might mean that that people no longer thought the cause necessary. So they were very intent on uh, building publicity. I also remember the recruiting of uh, prominent Australian bioethicist Peter Singer, who's been on the program a few times, and his colleague Helga Coos. They became very influential here. They did. So there, there was sort of a grassroots movement and at the same time um, under the auspices of the Monash uh, Centre for Bioethics that was established in the 80s, uh, and Singer began to write articles, both academic articles and in the newspaper, promoting euthanasia. Um, I, I've never been an admirer of conservative political parties, but I found myself supporting Marshall Perrin, who was the country liberal uh, chief minister in the NT. How, what possessed him to introduce, to <laughs> indeed uh, pass a voluntary euthanasia bill back in 1995? I mean, he was a conservative um, maverick, I guess, and 
apparently, I haven't been totally a- able to to track this down, but it was very sudden and it, it appears that he was inspired by a talk he see, saw Helga, Helga Kuss give and he um, rushed the legislation through. It was sort of like the last hurrah of his um, administration and, yes, and then became a quite outspoken advocate for it. Thank heavens we had John Howard. That's all I've got to say. Look, <laughs> Caitlin, I have been very mean lately in handing out koala stamps, which is the highest order that Late Night Live can give uh, distinguished interviewees. But you've just copped one for your splendid work on this subject. Oh, thank you. And <laughs> with, with, I might point out, oak leaf clusters. My guest has been Dr. Caitlin Maher, and that's M-A-H-A-R, historian at Swinburne University and author of The Good Death Through Time, published by Melbourne University Press. But because of time problems, we now have to pull the plug. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.